All right, grab your Bibles, turn to John, John chapter 13. We're going to look at five verses today. Uh, we're taking a break from our, the series that we're in. If you're with us for the first time, we have, since the beginning of the summer, been in a series looking at the book of Proverbs, trying to get a little wisdom. And uh, as we launch into fall, we're actually going to continue in our Proverbs series for uh, quite a few more weeks. But I'm taking the opportunity today as we begin our fall small group cycle to exhort us in regards to why we do community groups. Um, so that's what this sermon will be today, uh, entitled Love One Another. And that really is what John is getting after here in this particular passage. John chapter 13, John's going to be in your New Testament. Uh, there's a Bible underneath the center aisle of seats if you need to grab one. And if you are unfamiliar with your Bible, just look at the table of contents. Every Bible has a table of contents. So it's like a book and you're welcome to grab that and look at it. We're going to read these verses out loud together, starting in verse 33, going through verse 38. Let's read together. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will, know, you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you for the gathering of your church today. Thank you for your word. I would pray that it would be life and light to us today as we dive in and as we explore the why of, of community groups. Um, Lord, it's Labor Day weekend. We thank you for uh, those uh, founders of our nation and and those leaders in latter years who saw fit to honor our labor by giving us a holiday to, to celebrate the, the hard work that we do um, in and around our country. And so um, we, we thank you that you even give us labor to do, that you've created us for work. Uh, you've blessed us with that gift, and it's a part of our worth and our significance. Today, Lord God, as we um, uh, seek to look at another part of what makes us who we are. We pray that you would give light to your word, that we would see why you've called us not to live life solitary all by ourselves, uh, alone and lonesome, but you've called us uh, to live together, loving one another as you've loved us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 So our text in, in context, we actually went through the, the Gospel of John for most of 2015, beginning it in around January, ending it in around January, uh, February of, of this year. And so you can actually go back and, and see what we've said regarding the whole book of John on our website uh, there in our podcast section. But in context, uh, this is really the, the last time that Jesus gathers with his disciples. Uh, we call it the, really the Last Supper. Um, uh, he's having his last meal with some of his closest friends, and he's preparing for a time that he's getting ready 
to leave them. And uh, as I think about Jesus leaving, this isn't a perfect analogy, but it's almost like dad going on a business, dad or mom going on a business trip and you sort of spend the morning with your kids, you know, eating breakfast, playing with them a little bit. You're all packed up, ready to go. But, but before you go, you want to sort of lay down the law. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting down with your kids and you're telling them, you say, all right, so um, if you make life easy for your mother or your dad while I'm gone, it will make life easy for you when I return. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, parents? Um, and of course, if you got little kids, they're smiling, they're nodding, they might even be looking at you as if they're paying attention. But the reality is, I mean, they're thinking all kind of thoughts. They're not probably probably not even with you. And they're just waiting until it's time to get that snack. You know, the snack that they're waiting for in the cupboards in the kitchen. That that really is the kind of the, the context that we're looking at in John 13. Jesus is sitting down, um, having an intimate meal with his disciples. He's saying something very important to them in regards to, to him leaving. He's preparing them for his absence. But the truth is the disciples have no idea of what he's telling them. In fact, they're, they're clued out. It's like, a, what, are you, what are you talking about? Um, let's back up. Let me give you more context. Verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so as Jesus entered dinner with his disciples, here's the one thing that Jesus knew that he was setting up. He was going to depart. I mean, he knows that he's leaving. It's no doubt in his mind. So the sovereignty of God, all the things that God had set in motion, sort of turned the crank that would begin uh, that phase where Jesus would be glorified by going to the cross, dying a fitful death, being buried in the grave, uh, and eventually uh, resurrecting to new life. That stuff has all started to going. And Jesus knows that that's going to, going to happen. And all the things that God has done to move that forward. And these words are very important. Jesus says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I'm going to explain what that phrase means uh, a little bit more uh, in a few minutes. But basically, he's saying Jesus loved them to the full extent of, of the love that he could give anybody. He loved them to his death. He's looking forward to his death on the cross. All right. Fast forward down to verse 33 again. Verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you'll seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And so as we look at this, this body of text here, uh, it's important to know what's going on in the, in the minds of the disciples. Think about this. These, were, these really were Jesus' close friends, closer than the his own family that he had, his mother, his, his, his dad's probably out of the picture at this point, um, all of his brothers and sisters. And they had walked with Jesus. They had slept with Jesus. They had ate with Jesus. They had spent three, the three years of Jesus' ministry life. They had spent with him forming a friendship. And can you imagine hearing Jesus' words at that time that he's about to leave? I mean, it would have been... Um, um, it would have shocked them to, to have heard those words coming out of his mouth. And he also says to them, where he's going, the disciples 
can't follow. I mean, can you think, I mean, what would have gone through the disciples' mind as they're hearing these words from Jesus for the first time? Someone as close and intimate as Jesus would have been to them as a friend as he would have been. It surely would have rocked their world. If we would back up and think about all the things that Jesus had gone through with those particular disciples. Think about, um, so uh, Jesus done some miracles. He, he healed somebody. He opened blinded eyes. Jesus walked on water. He gets to John 6, and he's uh, crossed uh, the, the Sea of, of Capernaum, uh, Sea of Galilee, coming to Capernaum, and he's talking with his disciples about being the bread of life. And Jesus, I mean, he starts, he starts saying some crazy things at that point. And he tells the disciples, if you want to have any, any part of me, of course, these are all people that are following him because he's done all these miracles. He took a, a few fish and a few pieces of bread and multiplied them to feed 5,000 men, not including the men, that, uh, the women and children that were in the group. And so all these people are following him and he, um, he ups the ante. He says, hey, if you want to follow me any further, um, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're looking at Jesus like, what in the world? We're not cannibals. I mean, what kind of crazy talk is that? And so Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, uh, you know, these are leaving. You want to leave too? And the disciples rightly says, say to him, uh, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life, John six sixty eight. And so for them, um, really, Jesus was their only option. They had left their jobs. They had left their friends. They had left their family. They, in effect, by following Jesus, had left everything to intently be with Jesus and his ministry. And so these words that Jesus says to them, that I'm leaving and where I'm going, you can't come now, but you can come later, would have, I mean, it would have shell-shocked them. They would have not understood what he was talking about. Not only that, they would have been perplexed as to what he meant and what they were to do in regards to what he said. They actually don't know what Jesus is telling them. Um, you can't go where I'm going, but you will follow me. Here's how this relates to us. Um, it relates to us in, in this way. Uh, we're born into the world, into this physical absence of Jesus. So the disciples had Jesus with them up close and personal, and then he tells them that he's leaving. We're born into a world where Jesus has never physically been here. And so what Jesus is doing really in this scene is he's setting up a plan by which the disciples will learn to exist in the world that God has created without the intimate connection that they've had and they've formed all this time with Jesus. He's expressly going to teach them in these last few days of his life how to thrive as disciples, as the people that God has called them to be um, without him. And here's the thing. We're still under that plan. We're still under these words that Jesus said to these same disciples that he's going to leave where he's going. We can't follow him now, but we will follow him at some point after. And so in our text today, Jesus is trying to set up these disciples, but not only them, he's trying to set us up for how we're to live life today. And so here's the question. What's the plan? I mean, what, what is that plan of how, how would Jesus care for us in this world since he's not physically here for us? And I would tell you, this goes back to what I, the little illustration I gave you at the beginning. It goes back to the same way that a, a mom or dad who's going on a trip what kind of comfort their, their kids as they're leaving. Uh, they're saying, all right, so, you know, 
Aunt Josie from church or mom and dad are going to come in from out of town and they're going to provide for your needs. But more importantly, you got each other. You know, Jonathan and David and Zoe, you, you got each other. God has made it so that not only are you family, but you are to serve as community for each other. You are to hold each other up, be together, do those things that you would do to care for yourself. And that really is what Jesus does. He calls them to a life of community. And he does it with these words. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By all by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here's the thing. Jesus is not calling them into some kind of sentimental love. He's not saying hold hands and sing kumbaya. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's telling them to depend on each other. He's telling them to press into relationship um, beyond the normal difficulties of relationship of just dealing with with other people. He's telling them, in other words, to depend on each other. And he uses the words one another. And if we would just go through our New Testament and look for those two words, you find one another as one of the most important phrases that Jesus talks about when he talks about us being in community with each other over 100 times. And so this is an important thought that Jesus is giving us, that our faith in Christ, that our life as Christians is meant to be played out, not solitary, all alone by ourselves, but we're supposed to be in community. Because, And, and here's going to shock you. Why does Jesus want us to be in community? Because he loves us. It's as simple as that. He loves us, and one of the expressions of his love, one of the ways that he teaches us to persevere in the world that we live in is by not doing it alone, is by connecting yourself to other people who are living the, uh, you know, this, this Christian life out loud like you are as well. He wants us to persevere. And so that's what we're going to talk about real quick. That was a long introduction, but I wanted to set it up with, uh, just with, with what Jesus is doing here. We're going to talk about three things. Uh, we're going to talk about why, uh, why essentially it's, it's good and right for us to be in community. We're going to talk about what makes this command that Jesus gives us in John uh, 13, 34, what makes it new. And then we're going to talk about what we're supposed to do in response. You know, a lot of times when we ask, when we talk about community groups, small groups, um, all the, the different kinds of group structure in a church, we default to what we do. Okay, we try to you know, we invite, we try to encourage people to join us in what we're doing. And a lot of times we're like, well, I mean, I got the greatest group. We go out and play basketball or we go out. I mean, we grill out every week. We do potluck every week. Ours is the funnest group. We meet at the coffee bar and just hang out and talk about life and, and watch people, you know, all those kinds of things. And it's important that the what we do are important because that does attract people, especially if it's like a free market group and you're doing things that other people might enjoy to do. Sometimes we default to how. I mean, how do we do a group? And, and for, for our church, we do sermon-based groups. So the, the, passage, uh, the passage from the Bible that uh, a transit preacher will preach, we, we unpack that. It's not a regurgitation of the sermon, but we simply open that up and try to apply it to our life to make it more meaningful so that we're not just you know, listen to a good sermon on Sunday and then forgetting about it as we go about our, our, the rest of our week and then getting another sermon the following week. Um, some churches have free market groups, uh, which is another how. You know, how do, I, how do we get together as groups? We gather around those things that, that are fun for us. Um, but in my sermon today, um, probably the most important thing that I'll say to you is why. I mean, why do we, 
why do we have community? Why does the Bible encourage us to be in community? And that's the first thing we'll talk about. Why is community so essential to the Christian life? Um, what I want to start is why this, uh, what's, what's not so new about this command. Uh, when we look at our, our need for community, um, it's rooted all the way back into the very beginning, all the way back into creation. You guys know, I don't know, there's probably not a sermon that I've preached that I haven't gone back to Genesis. I mean, can you, can you remember a sermon where I've not talked about Genesis? Because why? Because Genesis, everything happens in Genesis. Everything, you know, that, that happens in your life and everything that, that serves the foundation for almost everything else we find in the Bible starts in Genesis. And so we're going to start in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Here's what uh, the Word of God says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Usually when I uh, write this verse, I, f- I focus a lot on um, the image part, and the image part is important, but today I want you to train your eyes to um, the very top, verse 26, then God said, let us. Isn't that interesting that way back in Genesis chapter 1, um, God uh, addresses himself in the plural, now, theologically, say that God is introducing, I'm sorry, I, I'm doing that, but I don't know what I'm doing, all right? So I'm going to do it again, but just ignore me. Um, God is introducing the theological topic of the Trinity. The word Trinity, Trinity does not exist at all in the Bible, but what we extract from the theology of the Bible, the Bible story of redemption, is that God, one God, exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And if we would trace just the storyline of the Bible and the individual scriptures, we learn that God addresses himself as both Father deity, Holy Spirit deity, Son deity in, in various parts of scripture. So God decides to make man, us, into his image. And the image that God paints of himself is that he dwells not in solitary confinement, but as this perfect harmonious, united God, one God, three persons. And so what this means when he says that we are created in his image is that we are created for community. And I don't know about you, but we kind of sort of know this. Even if you are an introvert and you tend toward isolation, there is also a part of you that at times doesn't want to be alone, that it just feels awkward that if you are isolated and all by yourself. I think we recognize that we, we all have a need for other people in our lives. Solitary confinement is not something that most of us volunteer for. We have a need and we know that we need other people. Another way of saying this is God has made us image bearers. Let me explain that. Um, Alexandria is a historic town. I mean, the churches, you know, you guys live all over. I know that. But the church is situated right here in the midst of Alexandria and Kingstown. So I'll use that as an example. I mean, there's some cool things about Alexandria. It's the home of George Washington, just two, three miles away. We got Mount Vernon, you know, him and Mary just hanging out. Um, Martha, Martha, right? All right. That's her name. Yeah, her too. (laughs) So, you know, pretty cool. Mount Vernon. Oops. (laughs) 
home of Robert E. Lee. You know, it's, it's, you go down to Old Town and you can see the, the, the history of, of, uh, of this great city that was at the very foundation of who we were. Alexandria, 15 minutes from uh, you know, downtown in our nation's capital where there are um, temples and monuments uh, dedicated to the history of the founders of our great country. One of my favorite the, uh, is the Abraham Lincoln uh, Memorial. And um, there in that temple-like structure is this larger-than-life depiction of Abraham Lincoln. Um, you know, none of us have ever seen Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president. Uh, but if, you, if you're searching the history books, you see a picture of him and you go to the monument and guess what? That larger than life depiction is, I mean, it's, the, it's what you see in the picture, right? And so what the designers of the Abraham Lincoln Memorial have done is they're trying to convey as much truth about Abraham Lincoln um, and his legacy to our nation as is possible with the material that they were they were given to make it. I mean, uh, think of the I mean, it's almost like a temple as if we're supposed to worship him. And, and, and the columns depict the strength that that he had as a man that he lent to our nation on the inside are transcribed. Some of the greatest words that this man wrote with his pen and then spoke with his mouth, the Gettysburg um, Gettysburg Address, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. You see all those um, all those words inside this this great edifice standing there. It's one of the largest monuments that we have at the end of the National Mall. And and the truth is, uh, as far as I mean, they were they put as much into the design as they could to communicate who he was, although there were some limitations. And I think that the marble structure that it was made of. And here's the thing. God does the same thing with us. God, we're image bearers of God. And what God does is he puts as much as he can in us to convey through us who he is, although there are limitations in the design. Okay, he, God can't put all of who he is in us because there's limitations in, in humanity, in, in the, the substance that we are made out of. But in and of itself, we image him. As solitary beings, there are, are truths that we can convey about God. And so as somebody encounters me, they encounter someone who can think, kind of, right? On, on my good days, I can think. When someone encounters me, they, they encounter someone who has emotions on, on sometimes, yeah? I, I have joy and I have sorrow and I have sadness and I have happiness. And they can experience that about me as they encounter me. And God has those same attributes. Or as someone encounters me, they can they can see a part of me that's creative or the part of me that um, that's intellectual kind of, you know, I mean, those those are the things that you can experience with all of us in all of these ways. Uh, we reflect who God is to the rest of his creation. But of course, uh, there's a whole host of things that I can't reflect that you can't reflect about God. Uh, there are communicable attributes. There are incommunicable attributes. Think back to think back to Genesis one twenty six. God says, "Let us." I mean, we're solitary beings. Um, we don't dwell in community. But guess what? God made provision for that. That brings us to Genesis chapter two. Genesis two eighteen. This is a wedding verse. Uh, I can't think of a wedding that I, I sit down with couples as I'm preparing to to you know to help them get help them marry each other. And this is one of the verses I talk about. Then God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And so God has made provision 
for us that we would not be alone. For Adam, he paraded the animals across him, had them name him. And then God says, hey, you're all by yourself. I'm going to make it so that you, like me, can dwell in community. And God gave us this so that we would learn that this need for other people is foundational to who we are. It's, it's a part of the nature that God has given us that he wants us to bear, bear into. That as God is relational and exists in eternal community with himself, he wants us to know that we've been created to be relational beings and reflect the relational nature of God. And that's why it's not good to be alone. It's not just good to be alone because men can't take care of themselves, although some men actually do need help. God made women to be helpers for men. It's because God put it in us not to be alone. He wants us to dwell in community with other people. And, you know, this is an important point. Um, and most of you have heard these words before. So let me let me say this succinctly so that you won't dismiss it. Um, you know, you go and buy a new car and we all have our choices about cars. Some of you like uh you know, you got to have a car at Bluetooth so it'll connect with your phone and you can just like tap a button and, and, and talk into your phone and do all those things, text back to people and stuff. Some of you like heated seats because, you know, when it gets like 70 degrees in Alexandria, Virginia in January, you want your butt warm when you get in your car, right? Some of you want power windows. Some of you want the stuff tinted, all those kinds of things. Here's the thing. Um, community and this relational nature that God has put in us it's not just some design feature like you picking out a car. It's not what God is doing. He, he's made us relational because it mirrors the love that God has for us. He loves us. And as his creation, he wants us to experience the same love and harmony and unity that he's experienced as the Godhead in perpetuity forever. Human be- I mean, believe it or not, humanity, people like you and us, We are the pinnacle of his creation and God created us in his image and likeness so that we would have so that he could convey who he is to the rest of his creation. And one of those ways is to make it so that not a design feature, a gift of God. I mean, that he lays out for us to take advantage of. And it's this relational nature that we have being in community. So we're not just built for community. We're built to thrive in community with one another. And God invites us to orient our lives around that in very specific ways. And so a lot of times we would say that, you know, small groups, community groups, these are important for the church because it makes a big church small or it closes the back door. If you can get people involved in some aspect of making friends and hanging out with other people in a church, it will prevent them from, you know, from getting bored and leaving. And, and, you know, I would say those are tools that the church should use to get people involved, but that's not God's purposes. God wants you to be around and thrive in community because he loves you. He wants you to receive the gift of community and to receive it with joy because you were made for it. But here's the reality. Here's the truth. I'm speaking the truth out of my own life because I know myself. I know the world we live in and, uh, and I know you. I mean, community is hard, right? Isn't it? It's hard to be around other people because people are messy. And when and when you get around other people who are messy, you get their mess on you. And like, dang, I don't want that. Community is hard. It's hard to build. It's hard to submit yourself to it. And once you've built it, it's extremely hard for us to maintain. And so why is community so hard? It's hard because God tells us it's hard. Genesis 
Um, Genesis, uh, Genesis doesn't stop in Genesis 2. There's a Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, that's where the sin comes in. That's where the mess starts. Adam and Eve do what God says not to do. They rebel against God, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So as we're trying to understand community, we need to understand that God created us in the image of God. He built us for this and he tries to motivate us to embrace it. But the truth is, just like sin came in the world in Genesis 3, sin mars that image and it makes everything hard to include um, hanging out with other people. So one of the first things we I mean, two things in particular, one of the first things that happened when Adam and Eve sinned is they, they went and hid. Right. They went and hid behind some trees. They, their eyes were open. They knew they were naked. And so this, this cool harmony, just hanging out, enjoying each other, that Adam and Eve had with each other was, was like severely interrupted to the point that they didn't even want to like, uh, don't look at me. Right? But more importantly, the, um, Adam's, Adam's relation to God was severed as well. And so... Um, this, this crazy scene, uh, God is going to look for Adam. Adam, where are you? And uh, Adam calls out when he realizes he can't hide from God. And, uh, and I mean, Adam, I mean, he does what all men do. He, uh, he made an excuse. That woman, that woman that you gave me, God. And so what does he do? Adam refuses to even um, deal with his own stuff. And he blames God for giving him the woman. And then he does what us men do a lot of times, too. I mean, he, he got in his bus, his, his Old Testament thousand year old bus, and he ran, and ran over Eve. And like thousands of years later, we can still see the tire tracks on Eve's back from 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 Adam running over Eve. And he not only said this woman that you gave me, I mean, she she did this to me. And of course, we see the, the breaking relationship between us and God. We, we, we go and hide in shame from our sin of rebellion and disobedience, but we also hide from each other. And so this, this, this tension that exists, God put it in us to, to be around other people and to need and to want community. I want to know and be known. I really do want to be um, not in solitary confinement, but to have familial, intimate relationship with other, with other people. But there's sin in me. And I'm... I'm I am shameful of, of my sin, and I don't want you to know about it. And so I'm going to hide to the point that I would rather not deal with you, and I live in this tension for the rest of my life. In fact, you and I, we're born into this. This is how we're born, into this tension of knowing that we need to be around other people, knowing we need community, but being born into the sin of, of, of the sickness of our shame that we live with and we don't want anybody to know the bad parts of us. And so what do we do? We live right in the midst of the tension and we're stuck in between those two. It's how we come into the world. And the manifestation of that tension is, again, is we hide. We hide behind our work schedules. Y'all do that. I'm going to work. I'm going to work so hard that I don't have time to deal with other people. We hide behind our kids and their schedule. I'm going to drive myself crazy, taking my kid to soccer and gymnastics and, you know, school stuff. And then we're going to come home and do and do homework. I, have, I don't have time for other people. We hide behind the stage of life that we're in. What does that mean? It means that 
I only have time for those people who are exactly like me. I've got kids who are two to five. I'm going to hang around with kids who are two to parents with kids who are two to five so that our kids can play from four to five. And then I'm going to go home and stay in my house and not deal with other people who might be in another, another life stage. Say you're a single family, no kids, and you like to hang out to nine or 10 or 12 at night. I, I can't hang out with you. Or, or I'm going to, I can't hang out with older people who are, you know, beyond 50 like the pastor because, I mean, I mean, that's, that's just too old. Don't you have back pain? Like, I don't want the leak on me. And, and then we have this, and then we hide behind our bad experiences. And I have to be careful here because these are real things. Uh, say you've had a bad experience and that bad experience as you've taken the risk and exposed yourself to other people and you've gotten hurt. Someone has embarrassed you. They've called you out or or in a, in a moment of vulnerability, you, you let it hang out there. You said that you said something about the bad experience that you've had and somebody gossiped and the whole church or the whole group heard about it. And you just felt like a like a. B-U-T-T. I mean, it's just like, I mean, that happens. And when that happens, um, it's the worst thing that could ever happen to us. And so these are real challenges. We shouldn't minimize them. But we stay in this tension and we end up receiving this wonderful, beautiful gift of God, community, relationship with other people. And this is what it is. It's a gift. We put it on the table. We know it's there. It's nice, tied up. We got a nice little bow on it, but we never open it. A gift from God that we never open. And so this is what makes this command. This is my second second um, point. This is the tension we enter as we come into Jesus Christ as Christians. We all enter the tension. There's no way of escaping it. But look at verse, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So Jesus isn't just reflecting on his own personal example here. He says... Um, as I've loved you, love one another. It would be a mistake to think that Jesus is talking about, all right, so as I've loved you, as, you know, remember, we went around, I did some miracles, I fed you miraculously, I said great things to you, I want you to go and do that with other people. Um, that would be a cool interpretation, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, as I've done all these cool things to you, I want you to do them as well to other people. Jesus is, he's pressing himself forward. He says, I've loved you. And so go love like I've loved you. And what he's talking about is he's talking about John 13, 1. He says, I've loved you to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He's talking about loving humanity to the full extent of his love, which means he went and loved us to his death, dying on the cross for the sins of the world. I mean, what it, think about what Jesus died to. He died to take on our sin. He died on the cross. And God, in his love, received Jesus' sacrifice and raised him to newness of life. Jesus, through his act on the cross, defeated for us Satan, hell, sin, and the grave. Amen. And so that's what Jesus means by loving them, loving us to the end. He's looking forward to all that he'll accomplish on the cross. And so here's, the, here's a depiction of, of where we are. If... If our sin and our shame, you know, received from Adam's original sin, ha- creates this tension in us so that, um, so that we're fearful of being known and wanting to be known, Jesus 
on the cross, John 13, 34, loving us to the end. What's he doing? He's conquering sin, Satan, hell and the grave. He's making it possible for you and I to actually experience, at least in part, the harmony, the unity, the communion that God intended for us from the very beginning. We live in this tension, but Jesus is pulling us away from the the isolation of sin into this communion with himself and with the holy God that that reconciles us by Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus makes it possible for you to experience a type of community that he's experienced with God the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity. The writer of Hebrews corroborates this. Look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. I'm a cheat. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, all right, so because... Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we can draw near to God. The relationship that was broken is now mended and and we're reconciled in our relationship to God. He continues, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works. We're reconciled to, to God by the work, the person and work of Jesus on the cross. And here he's saying we, we can be reconciled to each other. Say, don't hold fast. And that, that's, that's the same verb used um, in the Old Testament where it says a man and his wife will, will cleave, will hold fast to each other. It's like holding on and don't let go. He says, hold on, don't let go to this hope. Why? Because the thing that Jesus has promised, he's going to fulfill. He's going to, he's promising you relational life with God. He's going to give it. How does he give it? By, by Jesus' death on the cross. He says he's promised you a fulfilling life with other people. How is he going to give it? By Jesus' death on the cross, such that you can be reconciled to other people and be stirred up to love and good works as you hang out with them. And then lastly, he says, and this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another as all the more as you see the, the day drawing near. What's that? That's that's daddy coming home. Like dad's coming back. He says, you know, as I treat mom, you know, as it goes well with me and mom during in our relationship, it, it'll it'll be a, the, the same for our relationship with him as I get home. He's making provision for us to encourage one another and, and be reconciled in just a wonderful, loving, fulfilling relationship, all because of Jesus death on the cross. And this is his plan. How is Jesus going to take care of us? I mean, what's his care plan for us as he ascends to to heaven, goes to the cross, dies for our sins, ascends to heaven, wait until he comes back? It's like, I'm going to make it so that you can be reconciled to God, but also reconciled to each other by Jesus' cross. This is going to help us persevere. And and so this this should be encouraging to us. There is a way that we can actually exist on this earth, not in isolation, but reconciled to each other. You know, a lot of times we we emphasize as a Christian being um, all those things that we are saved to, saved from. 
I'm saved from sin. I'm saved from judgment. I'm saved from hell. I'm saved from eternity without God. I'm saved uh, in particular from God's wrath. And we should rejoice that we are saved from those things. But here's one thing that is, is pointed out by the writer of Hebrews, the things that we are saved to. And, and what are we are saved to? We are saved into something. We've been adopted into um, God's family, the universal church. We've been adopted into um, the community of believers, the local church. You know, for those of you here, you've been adopted into transit church. And so our motivation for doing community is not just a church program. It's not because the pastor stands up and say, hey, you need to get into a community group, into a small group. It, it, it's two things. Firstly, it's as we come together in community, we get to have get to participate in the tangible proclamation of who God is. That's why we come together in community, that God is real and that he's loving and he's made us image bearers. He wants us to image himself by being in relation to one another. Here, secondly, he wants us to proclaim the truth of what Jesus has done. Jesus, by his death on the cross, has torn down all the barriers, all the all the things that would divide us, race, gender, ethnicity, culture. Jesus is saying age. He's saying There's a way that the good news of my death, of my resurrection, makes all that stuff fade to the background so that you can actually love each other because I've put it in you to do that. And I would tell you, I mean, these aren't trite words and this is not easy, but he's saying it's worth pressing into. Why? Because he's called you to it. So if our motivation for groups is just to obey the pastor or if it meets some need, um, what's going to happen? You're going to do it for a couple of weeks and it's going to fizzle out. You won't ha- you won't be able to to withstand the mess of, of community, of, of dealing with other people. But then look what Jesus says in verse 34. We're stuck on verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus says, love like you've been loved. We read this as a command. It is a command. But what, how I would like you to receive it today, this is, it's not some obligation as if you're working for your boss and if you don't do it, you won't get paid. This is an invitation. Jesus is saying, there's life here. There's blessing here. There's more than you there's more that you'll receive, that you'll get out of this, this life of community, although it's hard, than you'll even put in yourself. And so he's saying, hey, check it out. God loves you so much that he wants you to experience what, what he's experienced within the Godhead. He's saying this is a way to a more fulfilling, enjoyable life, to press into one another. He's not saying it's going to be easy, but he's saying you're going to get something out of it. Because here's the thing. Life is going to present you some low moments and some high moments. And and I've lived enough life to know that, you know, I can hang out by myself in the high moments. But in the low moments, I always need somebody. Always. Larissa and I got we had a low moment this week. All right. And in our family and. And we need you. I'm not going to tell you what it is right now. I'll tell you later. I don't want to ruin my sermon. Um, but we need you. We need we need our family. Or you are our family. We need you around us to help us in, in the low moment that life sometimes presents us because life can get hard. And so when we embrace the gift that God is giving us, we get to be a part of something really amazing. Look how John finishes this command. Verse thirty five. He says, um, by this, all people will, by this, all uh, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. This is a beautiful phrase. He says, somehow other people are going to know that you love Jesus by the love that you have for each other. And I think Paul says it no, no Paul says it better than everybody else. In Colossians 3, he says, there's, there's, there's no longer Jew or Greek. For us, that would be black or white or, or red or yellow, you know, all the different flavors we have in, in this room right here. Um, he says there's, long, there's no longer Scythian or, or barbarian. And those were sects of people that hated each other. I mean, think of whoever you're the people you don't sit beside in this room, all right? That's, that's the, <laughs> come on, laugh. I'm just playing. <laughs> you know, no longer male or female. Anything that would be a barrier to us just being the people of God, he says the gospel of Jesus tears that stuff away. And how does it get torn away? Jesus says, by, by love. As we show the love of God one to another, people on the outside are going to see who we are they're going to know who God is because they're going to look and see how in the world are those people hanging out with each other? That doesn't even make sense. That's what he's talking about here. This is missional talk. Missional means like missionary. God has called you to be a missionary in the world, to be on mission with God, not in weird ways. I don't need you to stand on the corner with an A-frame and a bullhorn saying, hey, You're going to go to hell if you don't receive Jesus. Jesus loves you, but you're going to go to hell if you don't receive him. That's not I'm I'm, we're not asking you to do that. What are we asking you to do? Something way harder. Love one another. Love the old people and young people, the people with kids, without kids, the people that are blue and orange and red. And, you know, that's way harder than standing on a corner shouting at somebody that God loves them. and You're going to go to hell. (laughs) God has not called us to live on a sideline. He invites us to be a part of his mission. And when we see, I mean, when he calls us into his mission, he's calling us, you know, to the hard task of loving each other. Now, my last point, how do we respond? This is funny. Look at verse 36. This is how Peter responded. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me afterward. And so, um, Jesus has just given this new command. Jesus is pretty clear, not just with Peter, but with all the disciples. They actually heard him talking. But uh, look what Peter says. Peter says, I mean, Lord, where are you going? So for you parents, this is like, um, so you're telling your kids, all right, so behave. These are the things that are going to go on this week while I'm gone. And your kids are, they're staring at you. And you're like Charlie Brown's teacher. Why, 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 why? Okay, I mean, that's what's going on with Peter. Jesus says, I'm leaving. You can't go with me. And the words that Peter heard, he didn't hear anything after Jesus said he was leaving. Why? Because Peter is selfish and he wanted Jesus for himself. Peter was like, wait, 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 wait. I've I've left everything to follow you. And there's no way in H.E. Double Hockey Sticks that I'm letting you leave without me like holding on to you. I'm going where you go, Jesus. That's how bold Peter was. I mean, it's a pretty cool picture, but Peter was in error because Jesus was actually offering him something good. But and this is how we do. We're like Peter. Um, we're like Peter in this. Jesus is saying, I'm actually going to go do something good. You can't go, but you'll go later. And what Peter is saying is. I've given up too much for this relationship. Uh, I'm not willing to suffer the cost of of not having you in my life. And so you got to stay. I don't care what you're doing. 
do that. And the way this translates for us is that sometimes, and this is not a perfect analogy, I'm sorry, sometimes we will, we will look at the cost of being invited into a new, or a new deal, like going to somebody's house, eating somebody's food, hanging out with people you don't know, and we'll say, well, I don't know if I'm willing to put up with the cost of that. I mean, that, that requires too much of me. I'm going to have to give up too much of my time. I have to get off work, travel through, you know, through D.C. traffic. I might have to sacrifice, and I don't know if I'm willing to put up with all that. And that really is the thing that's going on in Peter's mind here. What am I going to lose by you leaving? And Jesus starts talking, and it's like, why, 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 why? But what we should not do is do like Peter did, and this is what Peter did. Peter missed the invitation. I don't want you to miss the invitation. Peter not only misses it, he goes in the opposite direction. Peter's so confident in his own faith. Verse 37, he says, Lord, I lay down my life for you. But of course, those are just hollow words because we know how it all ends. We can just read the Gospels. What happens? Peter follows Jesus. Peter, Jesus gets arrested. He follows Jesus to the point of his trial. And then immediately after that, Jesus is in trial. Peter's outside warming his hands. And a young teenage girl comes to Peter and she challenges him. She's like, you sound like and look like you're one of those ones that with Jesus. And what did Peter say? Heck no. I don't even know the man. I mean, Peter failed. Peter failed. But what Peter was trying to do was he was trying to stand alone. Peter didn't have the brothers around him. He didn't have the sisters around him. Peter thought that his faith was a rock, that he could stand on his own two feet. But he failed by not having the community of faith behind him. He went into the, uh, the darkness alone, and it only took a young teenage girl to show how weak he really was. You know, there's a lot of reasons that we can muster to hide from a call to community. I don't know what your experience is. I don't know what voices you hear in your head when, you know, when your pastor is saying you should consider getting into a community group. I do know you're busy. I mean, I, we live in D.C. That's a given. But I do know the enemy does not want us to be in community. He would love it for us to isolate ourselves. He would love it for you to just to be a sitting duck so he can just take you out one by one. And I would encourage you, don't let the enemy convince you that isolation is right. Satan has been trying to isolate us as a community of faith since Adam and Eve. He succeeded with them. God has given you words that would encourage you not to do like them. So let's not miss the invitation. Let me conclude with this. Jesus is commanding us to love one another. He's calling us into community that reflects his love as a reminder that apart from Jesus, our response to sin is isolation. And so if, even as you sit here and reflecting on all the words that I've said, reflecting on John 13, if you know that your life is moving towards isolation, I would tell you, folks, that's not the spirit of God working in you. That's your fear. That's the enemy trying to set you apart and make you like a sitting duck. And so our response to, to Jesus on the cross leads us in the community. Why? Because Jesus reconciled us on the cross to God. And Jesus reconciled us on the cross, like the writer of Hebrews says, to dwell in unity with each other. So what's my exhortation? It's simple. Love one another. Love one another. Uh, but, but, you know, here's the, here's the next step. Consider community. If you've never tried a community group, you know, we don't have community, perfect community groups, 
but we do have some. And if you're all if you're living life in isolation, just try it out. Uh, if you've been burned by life and you've been embarrassed or someone has gossiped on you, that I would encourage you take a risk, try it out. Um, don't live life alone. It, it, your your first embarrassment may not happen again. It might, but hopefully, God willing, it won't. If you have been in community groups and you've like like had your toe in, but not you haven't been really committed, then I would encourage you. I don't know. Take a step. I mean, just commit a little bit more. See what God does. See if God will not meet you there. I'm encouraging you to press in. And to press in simply means, scripturally, love one another. Love as, as Jesus says, love as you have been loved. And here's what I think will happen if we do that. Our city, Alexandria, Woodbridge, Dumfries, Lorton, Annandale, where else do y'all live? Springfield, all these places that we live in D.C. This is what Jesus promised us. They'll know that we're disciples of Jesus. Why? Because of our love for one another. Let's pray. Lord, we entrust ourselves to your word. May it not return void. God, I pray that your word would do its perfect work, not just in our ears for our hearing, but for our hearts, for our learning and for our transformation. Lord, in the end, community is this blood-bought gift. You died on the cross, Jesus, in our place for our sin that we might be reconciled to God through your blood, but also reconciled to each other. God, I ask that that you would make it so that our church would be moved by your spirit right now, but just throughout this first week of community groups. Um, God, I pray that you would um, encourage us to open the gift that you've laid on the table, the gift of community, that we would love each other as you've loved us. God, that we would open that gift and that we would enjoy it, that you would mark our church by being a church of community, of healthy community, relation to relation, black, white, male, female, old, young, kid, teenager, that it would be a mark on our city for your fame and the glory of your name. And I pray that in Jesus' name.